Hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 10. We're returning to Mark, picking up in chapter 10. We're going to be considering verses 1 to 12 this morning. We're going to start with the reading of the word. So as you have your copy there, follow along as I read. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and the crowds, crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Ask that God would add his blessing to the preaching and reading of his word. I wonder if you ever recognized, as you read the scriptures, you come to a passage you can read a passage one way and come, come away feeling convicted, burdened, weighed down, aware of the fallen state of the world. And then you can read the same text a different way through a different lens and realize that it's brimming with reminders of God's goodness and of his perfect design. I think it's true that one passage can prompt both of these things. It's because as we come to the scriptures, we see both of these, don't we? In almost every text, we see God's perfect plan, God's good design, God's good gifts. But so often, we also see how his gifts have been distorted, right? Because we live right of Genesis 3. You know what I mean by that? We live after the fall. So as we come to the scriptures and we see God's good gifts and the way he's designed everything and he's created a perfect order, we also see that it has been disrupted. As we consider the disruption, as we consider the results of sin, as we consider the ways God's plan has not always been honored, the reality is for often many of us, it's personal, isn't it? We come to the scriptures and we can be burdened. Maybe as you come to the scriptures, you recognize that you have not always lived up to God's standard. Hopefully often when you come to the scriptures, you recognize this. We see our own sin. Maybe, maybe the text brings to mind someone else's sin against us. We recognize that we have lived with the consequences of someone else's sin. The scriptures remind us we are a fallen people living in a fallen world. Both of these realities are true. God created all things good and created perfect order, gave to man a way to live which would be for our prosper, prospering. And yet, we also see the destructive and corrupting nature of sin. That's a long way of saying 
we have come to a text this morning that's a hard passage. And for some of you, may elicit reminders of some of the hardest moments and seasons of your life. You've already heard the text. It's a conversation with Jesus, with the Pharisees, about divorce. As we walk through the text, we can consider what God says about divorce. And I know, and I want to just acknowledge on the front end, that some of you wish this is a topic we never had to discuss. It's personal. Maybe painful. And it may be painful as we consider what Jesus says. We're going to hear as Jesus explains that divorce is contrary to the will of God. Divorce, as an example, of sin has distorted and destroyed one of God's very best gifts. The fact that divorce happens is proof that we are fallen people living in a fallen world. Sinners living and trying to live with other sinners. And so even as we bring up the topic, I know for some of you, you may feel, to feel a sense of guilt because you've been through a divorce that perhaps was your choice. And that's difficult to consider. Or maybe you've been through a divorce that was not your choice, that you did not pursue, and yet it happened. And that's hard to consider. Or maybe this topic's a reminder of pain because your parents or someone you're close to went through a divorce and you felt the impact. It's a hard subject for some to consider. In fact, I would be surprised if there's anyone in the room or anyone listening who's not been touched in some way by divorce. So maybe for you, this brings shame, guilt, anger. Maybe you desire, even in this moment, I want to justify myself. I want to explain the situation. I get it. But can I just encourage you just to be at ease this morning at this. We don't hide as a church, we don't hide this reality that every week when we come together, we come together as sinners. We come together as people who have rebelled against God, and yet we also come together every week to proclaim with joy that Jesus came and died so we can be forgiven of our sins. And so while this text may be hard for some, I hope that you will leave with joy, remembering the mercy of God. I think the deeper we feel shame, the deeper we may be tempted to feel guilt, at that same measure, we could be full of joy as remember, we have been shown mercy and we've been forgiven. This passage is a reminder that divorce is not God's plan for us. But on the flip side, it's also a reminder of the sweetness of marriage. So I told you in many texts, we see two things. And I think we see both of those in this text. We see how God's good plan has been distorted, but we also see the beauty of God's plan. So this morning, we have the chance to rejoice as we consider the covenant of marriage that God has given to us. That marriage is something that we, especially as God's people, should herald as a good gift from God. Especially knowing that we live in a society where marriage is often considered flippantly. You know this, it's very evident. People today are slower than ever to marry. As a society, 
We don't place a high value on entering into the covenant of marriage, which is why we have a whole generation of people of all ages who live together perpetually without marrying. And then if and when they do choose to marry, if it doesn't go well, they're quick to walk away. This is common. Marriage is treated as something that we can leave behind without much consequence. If it works, it works, and if it doesn't work, it can be ended, and that's considered normal. Well, this morning, church, I hope to remind you of the value of marriage. It was given by God for us to enter into with joy and then to protect. It's not something that should be easily dismissed or discarded. And even for those of you who may be here or may be listening, who have had relationships, who have had marriages that have ended by divorce, I want you to know that you can still be a person that says marriage is a good gift from God. You've not forsaken that right. Because even when we've sinned or been sinned against or gone through a situation that reveals the brokenness of our world, we can still see God's plan and know that it's best and proclaim it as best. So this morning, I hope this message serves to strengthen our resolve, individually and as a church, that marriage is worth fighting for. It's not something to be flippant about. It is God's good gift to us. Also, as we consider the passage, I hope we'll remember this, that because of the tension between God's perfect design and the reality of sin, we can cling to the gospel. We're sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We live together in a world where God's design has been marred and distorted. Yet this is why Jesus came. I just want that to to saturate every part of everything we say this morning. Jesus came so we can be forgiven. If you've sinned, he came so you can be released from the guilt and consequences of your sin. And if you've been sinned against, he lives to give you hope and comfort. To those who have sinned, to those who have been sinned against, those who live with the consequences of sin, we praise God for Jesus. And if you are tempted at any point this morning to be frustrated with what Jesus says, just remember this. That not long after he says this, he walks the road to the cross. And he gives his life so that we can be forgiven. We don't have to live as slaves to our sin. Regardless of our past, we can be ambassadors for the goodness and the beauty of God's plan. Sounds like a conclusion, doesn't it? We haven't gotten to the text yet. Let's pray and let's consider God's word together. God, this morning we come to your word and we acknowledge our need for your help. It's easy for us to come to your word and try to interpret it based on our own experiences. It's easy to come looking for justification or confirmation of our own thoughts and our ideas or desires. So we pray that you would help us. Would you help us to hear what you would have us to know and apply it to our lives? We want to honor you. So would you speak to us now through your word and through the power of your spirit? And if there are those among us who are struggling even now with guilt or shame, I pray that you would remind them of the forgiveness that you died to make available. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. One more thing before we dive in. 
I want to acknowledge that the Bible says more about marriage and divorce than this passage does. So we probably will not answer every question, and quite frankly, that would be unreasonable because there's probably as many scenarios that we could discuss as there are people in this room. So what I want to do this morning is to walk through these 12 verses and do my best to help us understand what Jesus says here. And then towards the end, we are going to branch out a little bit and get some important clarifications from some other parts of Scripture. So if along the way I say something, you start thinking, but what if? But just hang on to those, okay? And hopefully we'll get to the what ifs towards the end. But first, let's just consider what Jesus says to the Pharisees in this text, and then we will bring in other parts of Scripture as it's helpful. So we start there in verse 1, and we're reminded of where we are. We've been away from the Gospel of Mark for a couple of weeks. We get a a reminder of where we are in the ministry of Christ. We see that he leaves there, which is Capernaum in Galilee, and he heads towards the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, which is simply to say that Jesus is traveling from north to the south. He's heading from where his primary ministry has been up in Galilee, and he is moving towards Jerusalem. Maybe you know what that means. He's headed towards the place where he will be betrayed, tried, convicted, and crucified. And hear this, church. He goes willingly. He walks towards Jerusalem. Sometimes we can get to these verses and it just seems like a geographical note. But it's significant. Jesus is willingly moving towards the cross. And of course, some of the key figures that will come into play when he arrives in Jerusalem, those who will, who will desire his death most fervently are many of the religious leaders. We've seen them throughout the gospel, the scribes and the Pharisees, and over and over they're trying to trip up Jesus, right? They want to discredit him. They want to shame him. They want to ruin his public image. We've gone through the gospel of Mark. We've heard how they confronted him on his views of the Sabbath. They confronted him on his views about fasting and other religious traditions. They've accused him of associating with people who they don't think worthy of being associated with. And now we come to another attempt by the Pharisees to discredit Jesus. And this time, the trap is in regards to his understanding of divorce. It's another way to try to discredit him. So we read in verse 2. The Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, it is helpful to have some context. We know what our society thinks about divorce, but what what was going on in this society? Well, there was two main sects, and of course, people all in between. There was a more liberal sect that believed that divorce could be allowed for any reason at any time. This was a male-dominated society, and if a man wanted to walk away from his wife, that was his prerogative, and there were those who would use the Bible to justify that choice. In Roman culture, divorce was easy and frequent, which is something that, sadly, we are familiar with. Then there was a more conservative sect that said divorce should only be allowed in the cases where there had been unfaithfulness or sexual immorality. Two main views. And of course, the Pharisees knew that regardless of how Jesus answered the question, he would alienate some group of people. So this they considered was a win-win for them. Whichever way he went, there would be those who were disappointed. It's not an honest question. They're coming to Jesus, not trying to gain wisdom, but to discredit him, to harm him, 
and to cause division. And so they asked the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's how Mark poses the question. If we go to the, the Gospel of Matthew, the question has a, a little bit more. In Matthew 19.3, we read the question, is it lawful for, to divorce one's wife for any cause? And most would suggest that this was the, even the intention for Mark. This was the prevalent question of the day. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Or is there a limit? It wasn't an honest question come from the Pharisees, but I think we can all admit that it is an important question. And one, quite frankly, that we want to know the answer to. How should we as Christians, those who want to be faithful to God's word, how should we think about divorce? Is it allowed? Is it forbidden? If it is allowed, when is it allowed? The Pharisees asked the question, and Jesus answers, as he often does, with a question. He asks them, what did Moses command you? Now let me just stop and say, that's a good question. And it's a good example for us. When we have a question, the right answer is always, what does the Bible say? Our opinion isn't primarily what matters. I hope for you, my opinion is not what primarily matters. I hope for you, the question you always consider is, what does the Bible say? And Jesus answers the Pharisees. He says to them, what did Moses command you? Now, remember this, before we get to their answer, Moses wrote a lot. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in those, the five books, he said a lot about marriage and addressed divorce more than once. What we see is the Pharisees go to a particular text, and it is a key text. They go to Deuteronomy 24. They answer Jesus and say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So Jesus says, what does Moses say? And they say, Moses says, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. You think, okay, well, that seems pretty clear. Perhaps until we go and read the context of Deuteronomy 24. I think that's worth doing this morning. So if you have your Bible, you're welcome to flip back there to Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're just going to look at four verses here. We read there, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if that latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not again take her to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. It's a key text. But what I think is important to recognize, and this may, you may need to go back and read over the text again this afternoon, it's important to recognize that this is not actually a text giving permission for divorce. I said you may need to read it again. It's not a passage in favor of divorce, but rather it's direction for Moses intended to regulate the practice of what's already happening. 
And I would suggest it's an effort to protect those who are being harmed. Some have described this passage as case law. You, know, you understand what that means? That he's, he's taking a situation that has happened and saying, in this situation, here's how you should deal with this situation. And the situation is laid out. There's a man who divorces his wife and sends her away. The woman goes and marries another man, but he also divorces her. The only command we have in this passage is in verse 4, that he should not marry her again. So we've not seen a command that he should divorce her. It's a text advocating not for divorce, but for the protection of those who have been sinned against. Divorce has happened, and this law is given, and the main purpose is to protect innocent victims, namely the woman who's being passed back and forth between selfish men. It's interesting to note that the law acknowledges sin, right? It tells you we live right of Genesis 3. Things have changed. And here we see this acknowledgement that there are situations that need to be spoken to. Divorce is not commanded or instituted here by God. The reality is that divorce was happening, and so people were being used and abused, and the law is given mainly to protect those who are vulnerable. And I think that understanding of the text is confirmed by Jesus' response. They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away, which is true. Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, he wrote you this command. Now, if you're confused by everything that's happened in the last four minutes, maybe this will help. Jesus says this wasn't a command given to you to institute or to establish divorce. Divorce is not God's institution. Marriage is God's institution. This allowance was given because of the hardness of hearts, because of our sinful condition, Because of the effects of sin and the harm being done to people, this concession was given. The allowance and regulation of divorce was given for the protection of those being harmed. I think that's what Jesus is aiming to make clear. The intention of Deuteronomy 24 is not to make divorce acceptable, but to control its consequences. So let's come back to our setting. The question has been asked, is divorce lawful? The Pharisees answered the question by appealing to Deuteronomy. Jesus pushes them to consider, why is that text given? Why do we have this text? This text does not exist because God desires divorce. The text exists because of sin. And it's a concession to protect those who are being sinned against. So Jesus acknowledges Deuteronomy. He knows that this is their go-to text. He gives them an opportunity to express where their position comes from. And then he redirects the conversation. He doesn't change the subject, but he redirects the conversation. He says, we must go back further. You go to Deuteronomy and the provisions that Moses gave because of sin, that's not going far enough. Let's go back to another writing of Moses. Let's go back to Genesis. The law of Moses acknowledged that sin had corrupted God's good plan, but Jesus takes them back to the beginning, back to Genesis, and reminds us of God's will for marriage. I began by telling you this text helps us see two things, the results and the consequences of sin, and also the good gift and the plan of God. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, From the beginning of creation... 
God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Again, by the time of Deuteronomy, sin had changed so much. The law took into account and gave examples of how to deal with the effects of sin. But Jesus says, that's not where we should go to get our answers for this. We should go to God's original design, to God's original intent. And what we see is marriage is one of those things that God incorporated into his original plan for us. Genesis 1 and 2. There's so much to consider. Let's just point out a few things that we learn about marriage from the passage that Jesus quotes. I already mentioned the first thing. Marriage is rooted in creation. God designed marriage. God defines marriage. We see in verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, which is just a way of saying, you went to Deuteronomy. What did God say from the time of creation? What was his intention for marriage? What did he establish when he established this union? He made us male and female. He made us in a way that we could come together. Marriage was God's plan. It was not a man-made convention. This is big. You'll talk to, to people around. This is something, this is a man-made thing. We decided we should get married. We, this is something, this is our thing. No, no, this is God's thing. Marriage is God's plan, his design. Marriage is rooted in creation. And we see what happens when we're married in verses 7 and 8. A man shall leave his father and mother and then should do what? Hold fast to his wife, to cling to her, to not let her go. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. This is one of those mysteriously beautiful truths in the scriptures. When we come into a marriage, we don't come into a legal agreement alone. When we unite in marriage, this is more than a joint partnership that we enter into. No, God says when we come into marriage, two become one. We're united to our spouse in a way that we are not united to any other person in this world. It's unique and it's mysterious. This is not true of parents and children. As close as you may feel to your kids, this relationship is different than that. It's not true of any close friendship. The marriage relationship is unlike any other. It is a joining of two into one. And that one is never to be divided. This is God's plan from the beginning. One man, one woman for life. And the question of the text is about divorce. But you see how Jesus answers the question? He answers the question about divorce by reiterating what marriage is. It's a union formed at creation where man and woman comes together and in a mysteriously beautiful way, two are made one. And then we see something else in verse 9. That this union is not something that we actually create. Verse 9, we get, there's two parts, but let's consider them individually. First, what therefore God has joined together. You see that? Who does the joining? God does the joining. 
Which is to say, this is more than an agreement between two people. It is a God-formed union. And think for a moment how different this is from the way most people think about marriage. For most, we consider it something that we form and we govern. We choose to get married, and we can choose to no longer be married. What we see here is that God views marriage as something more than an agreement. When we enter into the covenant of marriage, he joins us together. Based on this, we get the second part of the verse. Let not man separate. The logic of the verse is not complicated. God joins people together in marriage. God creates the marriage. Therefore, it's not ours to dissolve. So much we could unpack here. Let's, let's try to stay in the context of Mark. The question has been asked, is divorce lawful? The Pharisees appeal to the law of Moses, and Jesus says that doesn't go back far enough. The law gives concession for sin, but the heart of the issue is found in God's original plan. The purpose of marriage and God's plan for marriage is rooted in creation. It's a union of two people as one flesh, a union formed by God and never meant to be broken. And yet in your mind, you may be thinking, yes, but what about? We're going to get to the what abouts. But first, just consider what Jesus is pushing us to consider. He's pushing this to the front, that the way we understand God's view of divorce is to understand God's view of marriage. And this is God's plan for marriage. One man, one woman for a lifetime. It's a good gift to us for our good something to be valued and cherished. And in Ephesians 5, we learn that our union is a way that we reflect his love and his faithfulness to the world. It's given to us to, to display him. And to mar that is to mar that example. I think we can say clearly from what we learn in Genesis that God's desire is never divorce. And this is not meant to heap shame or guilt on anyone. We acknowledge we live in a fallen world, and so our reality does not always reflect God's design. But I think as the people of God, regardless of our past, we should be the first to stand up and proclaim marriage is a good gift from God. Marriage should be valued. Marriage should be protected. And maybe you're thinking, I would love to say that. But you know as well as I do that if I said that, I would be a hypocrite. Because I've not honored marriage. I have divorce in my past. People close to me have been divorced. If your thought is that I can't stand for marriage because I would be a hypocrite, let me remind you, your experience does not have to, believe, to define what is true. And your past does not limit you from saying true things. All of us should be quick to confess what God says about marriage. God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. It's a good gift, something to be valued and cherished. And it's this view of marriage that should dictate our view of divorce. Jesus calls for a higher standard. When the question about divorce is raised, Jesus appeals to the nature of marriage. He reminds us of God's original plan. And at this point, we see that the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees seems to end. 
At least that's all that the Gospels record of the conversation. But the conversation continues back at the house. So that one of those themes that we see over and over in Mark, right? Jesus and the disciples go back to the house, and that's where we get an extended version of the conversation. So we pick up in verse 10. In the house, the disciples asked him again about the matter. And Jesus said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So in 6 to 8, we see God's plan for marriage, his design of marriage, what he intends. We know this is not always reality. Divorce happens. We are sinners living with sinners, and so we experience divorce. We see marriages that don't last. And with this in mind, Jesus explains what we can expect after divorce happens, how we should think about what happens next. I think he says these things to uphold the sanctity of marriage and also to provide us a a good warning. He says in these verses, those who divorce and then marry again are guilty of adultery. But what if? We'll get there. What we see here in this text, Jesus speaks plainly. I think when we come to these texts and our first reaction is to say, but what if? We should just pause and feel the weight of what's being said. Jesus has given us here a warning. We should hear his warning and feel the weight of it. It's a strong statement of how highly God values marriage. God did not design divorce. God instituted marriage, and it's meant to be taken seriously. And he says here that those who divorce and remarry are guilty of the sin of adultery. So hear the warning and hear the protection. Let's also say this. Maybe you're there. You've, this describes you. Is adultery the unpardonable sin? No. Is it serious? Yes. Can it be forgiven? Absolutely. This is why Jesus died. We'll come back to that in a minute. First, I told you we would consider some of the what-if questions. Maybe you're thinking, aren't there exceptions? It is good for us to move out of Mark for a bit, not because there are passages that contradict what's said here, but there are passages that give us more information. And perhaps the best place to go first is to the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19. The same conversation recorded by Matthew, and we get at least one additional phrase that's very significant. Let me just read for you Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 7. The Pharisees said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. See the distinction there. They say Moses commanded this. Jesus says God allowed this. But from the beginning, it was not so. So I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So it's a record of the same conversation, but here Jesus says something. He adds a phrase, or Matthew includes a phrase, I should say, that some have referred to as an exception. I prefer to call it a compassionate allowance. Here Matthew adds that Jesus says that there is a reason why divorce would happen, 
that would release someone and allow them to marry again without committing adultery. And the reason he gives, the exception or the allowance, is when a marriage ends because one party has been offended or sinned against through unfaithfulness. Jesus says the party who's been sinned against would be allowed to divorce or even remarry. Why? It seems that there's something in that act of adultery that does significant harm to the marriage. That does some things that are hard to undo. And so we see this compassionate allowance. Now let me say this. Does this require divorce? No. But we do see a compassionate allowance. We may ask, if we go back and we hold firmly to what we read in Genesis 1 and 2, why would there be any allowances? I think it takes us back to where we started. The scriptures, we see the beauty of what God intended. We also see that things have changed. Sin has entered, and when sin entered, things aren't always as they are meant to be. We live in a world where there is sin, where people sin and are sinned against, where husbands betray wives and wives betray husbands. And because of sin, because of the hardness of heart, God has given a provision. He has seen fit in his wisdom to give freedom to those who have been sinned against through unfaithfulness. Not required, but allowed. If one spouse is unfaithful, it doesn't mean divorce is necessary. Praise God, there are the opportunity, there is the opportunity for reconciliation, for restoration. We've seen it. It's beautiful. The goal should never be to find a reason for divorce. We also recognize there are times in the situation when divorce happens, maybe even when it's needful, and we see that provision here. I think as Christians, we should be the first to say divorce is not God's ideal. So while divorce may be needful, it should never be something we celebrate. It should always be a reason for mourning. It's a reminder of the brokenness and the fallenness of our world. But what we do see is that God gives us allowance. And then we actually see another one in 1 Corinthians. This is later in the life of the church. It's a period where we see people living as Christians in a way that they weren't yet back in the Gospels. And at this point, Paul acknowledges a different kind of situation. Here's the second allowance that we see in scriptures. That if a person who has a spouse who is an unbeliever, who leaves the marriage, that believing spouse who is left would be freed from that marriage. Let me read for you. I think the text speaks clearly. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 15. If it's something you want to think about later, We've heard some of the primary passages, Deuteronomy 24, Mark 10, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. That's that's good to establish that. If she consents to stay, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, 
and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, and here's the allowance, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or the sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. I think Paul lays out the situation pretty clearly. We see the allowance. If a person has a spouse that is an unbeliever and leaves the marriage, the believing spouse who was left is not bound. Again, we can ask, why the allowances? Genesis 1 and 2 is so clear. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Why the allowances? Again, I think this is God's compassion, acknowledging the fallenness of our world and protecting those who are innocent. It's an example of God's compassion to those living in hard situations. And while we're talking about exceptions and allowances, something else that's worth mentioning. Mark 10 is clear, and this one may stick hard for, for you depending on your past or the past of someone you love. Mark 10 says that if someone divorces, and we, should, we could add the, the qualifier, an unbiblical divorce, and they remarry, then they've committed adultery. You think, maybe you're saying, that's me. I was divorced. I married again. My divorce was sinful. And now, according to Jesus, I've committed adultery. And the question that may follow is, am I living in a perpetual state of adultery? I think we can find the answer to this question in Mark 10. There in verse 11, something we shouldn't miss. He says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Notice that Jesus acknowledges that second marriage has some validity. Which seems to indicate that while the second marriage begins with an act of adultery, the marriage is still legitimate. You have married another. And if we're consistent, we have to understand that it would be further sin for that marriage to be broken. So in this case, the appropriate thing would be for the couple to repent of their sin, acknowledge that their relationship began in sin, accept God's mercy, and commit to living as a married couple in a way that honors God. This is a kindness from God, another sign of his mercy as he deals with us sinful people. Maybe we've drifted a bit from Mark, but I thought some of these additional considerations were worth mentioning. It's a big topic. It's one that touches many personally. As we take all the scriptures into account, we see that God understands our weaknesses. There are some compassionate allowances. But yet, I think our primary takeaway should be this. We should walk away from this text realizing how highly God values marriage. Divorce was not God's plan. Divorce is not God's institution. Marriage is God's institution. And as the people of God, we should be the ones who stand up and say, marriage is good, it is a gift, and it should be fought for. We should fight against a culture that advocates for divorce quickly or for any reason. And even in the cases of abandonment and adultery, our goal should always be repentance. Our goal should always be healing. Our hope should always be restoration. 
We should not be looking for the quick way out. We should long to see marriages restored. Maybe you've seen this before. I've, I've had the joy of seeing relationships broken and restored, and it's beautiful. And it's a picture of the way God has interacted with us. We'll end with this consideration. That God is the ultimate example of what it means to show covenant faithfulness. Let's remember the gospel. That God loved us when we did not deserve his love. And while we rebelled against him in every way, we played the harlot. God was faithful. So as we consider the ways we've been sinned against, or consider the difficulty of remaining faithful in a marriage that perhaps is unpleasant, we should remember what God has done for us and the way he has loved us. He loved us so much that he sent his son to die so we could be forgiven. And if you are his, you will never be let go. We are imperfect in our love. We are imperfect in our covenant keeping. But God is faithful. He never forsakes us. He never abandons us. He always loves us. He always takes us back when we wander. He's always patient. If you're here and you've been married and divorced, maybe married and divorced and remarried, maybe married and divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried, remember that Jesus died so you can be forgiven. You don't have to live in shame. You can live in an example of his grace and mercy. You can be a living testimony of the covenant faithfulness of God. And this is true regardless of your sin. Whatever sin you consider your most egregious, Jesus died so you can be forgiven of that too. And we should also remember that God gave us marriage so we can portray his faithfulness to the world. So if you're married, this is our call. Let's show the world what the love of God looks like, what the faithfulness of God looks like. Live with your spouse in a way that shows sacrificial, covenant, faithful love. It's a high calling, but what a joy to know that God uses us to give an example to the world of himself. For all of us, for us as a church, I pray that we would recognize God's high standards and we would herald what God has called us to. At the same time, we'd be heralds of his faithful love, love showed to sinners, the forgiveness granted to sinners, and that we would enjoy and live in the freedom that we have been recipients of because of his mercy and because of his covenant faithfulness.